Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 3, Episode 3. One. Grace snapped awake. The candle was lit. Her life was burning away. Shaw stood by the table. It was still strange to see her there and not Manchu, like trying to walk with a fold in her sock. Shaw turned to replace the glass chimney over her candle. Drafts caused drips, and lost wax was life unused. Shaw was meticulous about Grace's candle, which Grace should have found reassuring, but her new superior's fetishistic care to avoid any waste of wax merely felt like another fold in her sock. In keeping with her devotion to efficiency, Shaw had set out a pair of black cargo pants, shirt, and tack vest before waking Grace. Not what she would have chosen for herself, but also not an argument Grace felt like having. Not again. And so she contained her inward sigh and reached for the pile. No plate armor this time? She asked. We're headed to a point off the coast of New Zealand, said Shaw. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be wearing plate on a boat. Grace shrugged as she pulled the shirt over her head. There's no evidence I can drown. No evidence you can't, either, said Shaw. Grace bent down to tighten her shoelaces, sensing Shaw's impatience as she did so. On their first mission, Shaw had suggested that, to save time, Grace could sleep in her shoes. Grace, still Chinese in spite of everything, had declined. Grace distracted herself from her thoughts and Shaw from her waiting with another question. What's the report from Team 3? They're on another call. This is our mission. Grace looked up, startled. What happened? You'll get the brief with everyone else on the plane. We're wheels up as soon as Brooks gets to the airfield. Sal and the rest of Team 3, which since Asante had been banished from the field, these days meant Father Menchu and Liam, had been heading for the airport and the next flight that could take them to Auckland when a call came in from the archives. The orb had another ping, this time with a location in central Spain. As soon as Manchu hung up with Asante, his phone buzzed again. This time, it was Cardinal Fox on the line. 
When Minshew ended that call, he turned to Sal, frowning. From what we can tell, the first coordinates are off the coast of New Zealand, not on land. The cardinal, Sal thought Minshew, did an excellent job of not flinching when he said Fox's new title. Believes that this means it is less likely to be artifact-related. He wants us in Spain instead. Team One will go to New Zealand. Did you tell him that less likely is not the same as impossible? Said Sal. And that he can't give our job to his old team just because he's in charge now? Added Liam. I made that suggestion. But since we don't have Grace and Asante is barred from field work, if our team splits up to cover both sides, it would mean putting one of us on our own. So, team one is going to New Zealand, said Sal. Manchu nodded. Yes, and you're going with them. Less than an hour later, Sal was strapped into the hold of a military transport that Shaw had somehow commandeered to take them all to a location on the other side of the planet. In addition to Grace, two others from the Team One roster had been tapped for the job, neither of them conversationalists. Sue, a Korean woman, was busy inspecting what looked like a steampunk jetpack. Given Team One's gear, it might be exactly that. The man, Ellsdale, who could give Liam a run for his money and a member of the society least suited to survive a sun demon contest, was asleep. Sal knew them both by sight from other missions, but apparently this wasn't the trip where they were all gonna bond and become friends. The one person on the team she had thought was a friend, Grace, hadn't even looked up when Sal said hello. Yeah, this inter-team collaboration was off to a great start. Okay, it took some work for Shaw to be heard over the roar of the engines and the rattle of the plane, but she made her voice carry. We're looking at a major disturbance off the west coast of the South Island. Local authorities are calling it an earthquake, but the orb says otherwise, so we're on the job. Lucky for us, earthquakes aren't unusual for that part of the world, so we shouldn't be up to our asses and civilian scientists and looky-loos getting in the way. Sal glanced over at Grace, who had her nose buried in the Da Vinci Code. Since when did Grace read airport thrillers? Sal tried to turn her attention back to the briefing. She managed, at least, to catch her cue when Shaw asked her to present the information that Team 3 had gleaned from the orb. Admittedly, not very much, beyond it's in the ocean, it's magic, it's big. But she kept stealing glances in Grace's direction. Grace didn't look up from her book once. The flight to New Zealand was long, and eventually all the others fell asleep. Grace put down her book that she no longer had to pretend to read and found herself alone with her thoughts. Did Team 3 do something to piss you off? Fox asked when Grace came to him in the aftermath of Belfast and Asante's trial. Grace returned Fox's penetrating look with one of her own. She had known three cardinals before he had taken over this office. Odds were she would know more. He didn't scare her. No, Grace said. Fox leaned back in his chair. Then why are you asking for a transfer? He asked. Grace didn't want to be wasting wax on this conversation. Shaw has made several overtures since she assumed leadership of Team One. I've come to agree that it would be a better match for my primary skill set. Fox considered this. He always said no before. What changed? Grace knew that Shaw's offers to bring her to Team One had certainly been supported, if not instigated, by Fox when he was still a Monsignor. Why was he so hard to convince? She was giving him what he wanted. Instead of voicing that thought aloud, Grace asked, does it matter? It matters if it affects the readiness and function of the society. 
said Fox. It doesn't. Despite the fact that Grace had then walked out of Fox's office, or perhaps because of it, the requested transfer had been granted. The next time Grace woke, it had been to Shaw looking down on her. She sometimes regretted not formally saying goodbye to Arturo, then tried it herself. Even when life was long, it was too short for regrets. Despite a population of more than 46 million, outside of the capital and the major cities on the coasts, most of the Spanish countryside was still just that, countryside. For stretches in the central plains, where you could go for miles between isolated villages, the illusion of aloneness broken only by the occasional car or train rushing by. Naturally, it was in one of these areas that Father Manchu and Liam's car, a loner from the society's tiny motor pool, came to a coughing stop, and despite Liam's best efforts at mechanical and spiritual persuasion, refused to roll another inch. Manchu helped push the car to the side of the road, then leaned back against the hood and sighed. I wish Sal and Grace were here. Why? And does one of them know how to fix a busted head gasket? Asked Liam. Manchu's chuckle carried in the quiet night. Not to my knowledge, but I don't like being away from the rest of the team. Grace isn't on the team anymore, Liam pointed out. Manchu allowed this without comment. More than that, he continued, the two sets of coordinates we've gotten from the orb just so happen to be exactly antipodal to each other. What now? If we drilled the hole from one straight to the center of the earth, we'd reach the other. Well, that's a little too perfect to be coincidence. Manchu nodded. As I said, I wish Sal and Grace were here. In the distance, a set of headlights appeared. They were low to the ground and soon joined by the roar of a well-tuned engine speeding toward them. Yeah, want to stick a thumb out, father? Manchu pushed himself off the fender of the car and joined Liam at the side of the road. Italian and Spanish are very close, you know, he said. I'm sure you could handle asking for a ride. Probably, said Liam. Father's no talking if the car doesn't stop, and that's more likely to happen for the guy with the collar than the one covered in tattoos. Manchu couldn't argue with that logic. Making sure that he was clearly visible in the spill from the headlights and blinking hazards, Manchu put out a thumb and Liam stepped a little farther into the verge at the side of the road. According to Liam's calculations, they were only about 15 kilometers from whatever had set off the orb. Not much of a detour, even for someone in a hurry to get home at this late hour. The throaty roar of the sports car was nearly on them and the driver flashed his brights. Manchu held up his free hand to shade his eyes. Oh, good, he thought, they see us. He allowed himself a moment of relief as he imagined a warm bed at the end of a long drive. Except the car wasn't slowing down. An instant later, Manchu was jolted nearly off his feet as Liam yanked him back from the edge of the road. The car zoomed past without even slowing down. Bloody hell, said Liam. He threw an obscene gesture in the direction of the car's taillights, but it was already disappearing around the bend. What's got them in such a hurry? Manchu brushed himself off with shaking hands, ridding himself of the dust kicked up by the car's passage and the bits of vegetation he'd acquired from his unexpected step into the hedge. So much for Spanish hospitality, huh? said Liam. Manchu shook his head, looking up and down the road. No sign of another vehicle. The stars glittered overhead, but in the distance, in the direction the car had gone, 
The horizon glowed. Menchu turned to Liam. Fifteen kilometers, she said. More or less. Menchu sighed. May as well start walking. The plane landed in Wellington. Shaw hailed a cab, which brought Team One plus Sal to the tattered end of the city's port, where the private charters and scientific vessels docked away from the cargo ships and their towering stacks of containers. From the cab, they boarded a modest vessel and headed out to sea. Hours passed. On the port side of the boat, out of sight of the wheelhouse and the aft deck, Grace stood alone at the rail. The rest of Team One was busy laying out a combination of magical weaponry they carefully kept out of view from the captain and mundane scuba equipment that they didn't. She removed a small notebook from her pocket, checked her watch, paused for a moment, staring into space as though performing some kind of mental calculation, and made a series of hash marks before returning the notebook to her pocket. The boat rocked under her feet, not the steady passing of the swells on the choppy waters, but a gout of water erupting from the deep. Grace stared, transfixed, as the water fell away and revealed a serpentine neck covered in glittering scales that rose and rose and rose. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much all any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. 
too. Before Shaw had come to the society, her training had not included what to do when a giant sea monster rises from the Pacific and tries to eat your boat. But the truth was that the lessons she had learned in the military were highly transferable. Lesson one, how to keep your head when the situation goes pear-shaped and any sensible person would GTFO and wish for their brown pants. Step one, follow procedure. Team, sound off and report, she barked. As she listened to and mentally logged what the others echoed back to her, she let her eyes take in the whole of the situation before her. Well, the whole of the situation that she could see. No way of knowing how much monster was still under the water. Shaw estimated the head was six meters above them now, water streaming from its feathery green beard and splatting down on them, accompanied by a wash of fetid breath that smelled of rotted fish, salt, and the deep, dark places of the sea. It was definitely aware of the boat. Hold, Shaw called, and didn't have to look to know that Sue and Ellsdale would be frozen at the ready. It was possible that the creature was more curious than hostile, if not that they could leave it in either case. Curious monsters, like toddlers, were apt to break the objects of their curiosity. Also, it was still a monster, and the society was not in the business of letting unnatural creatures roam free. But if it wasn't yet attacking them, they could use the time to gather information and observations. Information that might just save their lives or someone else's when the battle was finally joined. The creature opened its mouth, revealing two glittering rows of razor-sharp teeth. Not a krill eater, then, Shaw thought and drew her sword. Darts, now, Shaw called. Team One had higher turnover than the other branches of the society, but what they lacked in years, they made up for with constant practice. At Shaw's word, Ellsdale fired a volley of four darts from the pistol he had readied the instant the sea monster had appeared. All four, silver, lead, iron, and bone, hit their mark. The creature reared back, startled, but not, Shaw thought, in significant pain. Each hit bled, but none smoked, steamed, or showed any other particular reaction. Elsdale called out confirmation of her assessment. Four by a corporeal, zero by sensitive. Follow up with elementals? Negative, said Shaw. Ready archers. In the main, the society's magical weapons ran more toward melee than projectiles. It made sense. Once you fired a magic arrow, you seldom got it back. However, if this creature was vulnerable to mundane artillery, there was no reason for her people to get closer to those teeth than they had to. At Shaw's order, Ellsdale traded his dart gun for an RPG launcher, and Sue knocked a modern composite arrow into her longbow. Asante believed it had been crafted from lumber salvaged from the Argo, but all they knew for sure was that it imparted uncanny accuracy to even a novice marksman. Sue was not a novice. Fire went... Shaw saw unexpected movement in the corner of her eye. An instant later, Grace was barreling across the deck as if to leap over the rail and onto the sea monster. Hold! Shaw wasn't sure if she was yelling at Grace not to get herself eaten or at Ellsdale and Sue not to shoot the newest member of their team. In any event, only the latter two listened. Grace swarmed up the neck of the creature, silver sword strapped to her back. Fuck me, muttered Sue. Privately, Shaw agreed. But before Shaw could even formulate a new order for her team or a useful response to Grace, Grace had perched herself on the back of the sea monster's head, clinging with her thighs to a neck as thick as a century oak. The beast thrashed madly, trying to reach or at least throw off the annoyance on its neck, but Grace had pinched her knees in behind the hinge of its jaw, placing herself at least two meters from the snapping snout. 
Grace pulled out her sword, glowing with runes and mystic power, and drove it through the back of the neck. The monster writhed in pain and shock. A second neat slice and the severed head dropped to the deck, accompanied by a spurt of noxious fluids. Grace landed easily on her feet beside the growing puddle as behind her the remains of the monster sank beneath the waves. On the other side of the world, it was nearing midnight as Liam and Manchu reached the coordinates identified by the orb, the small village of San Lupino, and the source of the light on the horizon. Liam noticed the new construction scattered around the village square, the architectural steel glinting in the shadows of medieval stone, sometimes in the same facade. He wondered how that had gone over with the local planning commission. In his experience, people who lived in old places liked to keep them old looking. Then again, enough small communities had collapsed in the global recession that maybe the old residents had been glad to see new money in the local economy. Maybe the old residents had simply died off. The streetlights were on, but no one was out, which struck Liam as odd. He had never known the Spanish to be early to bed, early to rise types. Midnight in Madrid was, we're finally done with dinner and now it's time to hit the streets, time. Maybe schedules were different outside the city. Even Spanish cows didn't sleep in. As they crossed the square, however, one door did open, a small building beside the village church. The rectory? A man in an outfit very much like Manchu's emerged and motioned for them to approach. Yep, definitely the rectory. Father, the priest called from the doorway. Father? Menchu replied. This is gonna get old fast, Liam thought. But soon they were inside and the priest introduced himself as Lopez. What are you doing walking into town at this hour? He asked. Menchu explained their circumstances and Liam took the opportunity to look around. The rectory was a cozy, welcoming space, filled with comfortably battered furniture and heavy rugs to cushion the stone floor. Still, there was only so much that window planters could do to obscure the fact that the stone walls were at least three feet thick. The place had to be five centuries old if it was a day. Had it been built to survive a siege, or was it just the style back then to build as though you intended your church to stand until doomsday? Father Lopez clucked his tongue as Menchu told him about nearly being run over by a sports car. Rich foreigners, he sighed. They buy a summer house and then treat the roads here like their private racetrack. You're not hurt? Manchu assured the other priest that he was fine, if a bit footsore from their unplanned hike, and Father Lopez insisted that they accept his hospitality for the night. We have no hotels here and there is plenty of room. His face was perfectly open and earnest as he added, no man of God should roam our streets at midnight. Menchu had accepted the offer of beds for the night, and after he and Liam were shown to their rooms connected by a bathroom, they assured themselves they were alone and then took the opportunity to debrief. Whatever set off the orb is definitely nearby, said Liam, looking up from his laptop. In the village, asked Menchu. Probably, Liam agreed, barely managing the words around the massive yawn that suddenly surfaced to nearly split his face. Sorry, Menchu waved him off. No, no, Father Lopez is right. Roaming the streets in the middle of the night will help nothing. We'll get some rest and investigate in the morning. Manchu turned to go back to his room, but in the confusion of his own fatigue, went to the door that led back to the hall, not to the shared bath. He paused. Something the matter? asked Liam. 
when she stood at the door, hand on the knob, frowning. We uh, seem to be locked in, he said. Having successfully survived, or more accurately ignored, Shaw's lecture on proper procedures for engagement and the importance of team coordination and respect for the chain of command, Grace found a bit of privacy toward the stern of the boat. She had just pulled out her notebook and was checking her watch when Sal stepped up to the rail a few feet away. It struck Grace as a calculated distance, close enough to be an easy conversational range, far enough to have plausible deniability. What? No, I didn't come out here to stand next to you. I just decided to casually stand here and admire this patch of water that is exactly like every other bit of water that surrounds this boat. Why did you want to talk about something? Grace ignored her, but she did make a note of the time. Exactly 43 seconds later, Sal said, as though to no one in particular, I haven't heard anything from Manchu or Liam yet. Have you? Grace resisted the urge to roll her eyes, but only just. No, she said, but I'm not on team three anymore. They would have no reason to contact me. I hope they didn't run into any trouble. Trouble is part of the job. Yeah, said Sal. But if they do, we're all on the other side of the planet. Doesn't that worry you? Grace gave in to the eye roll urge. If there's something you want to ask me, Sal, ask. Otherwise, I'll go back to my book. You're not reading. You haven't been since before Belfast. And don't give me the Da Vinci Code. When I offered to loan you my copy back in Rome, you said you'd rather read shampoo bottles. Was there a question in there? Said Grace. You stop reading, you ask for a transfer, you act like you don't care about your old team, and you just defied orders to throw yourself at a sea monster. Are you okay? And to be clear, when I say that, what I mean is, why are you being an asshole? Three months ago, Manchu had caught Grace digging through his desk. When he asked what she was looking for, she gave him a bullshit excuse about needing old photos to confirm the date of a mission they'd gone on together in the Yucatan not long after she had joined the team. If he didn't believe her, he hadn't given any sign. He simply nodded and indicated his many albums. You're welcome to borrow the photos anytime, he said. Keep them for as long as you need. Grace had taken two of the earliest volumes and made her escape. His voice caught her at the door. Grace, he asked, are you all right? Grace gave Sal the same answer she had given Manchu. I'm fine. The door of the locked guest room popped open with a small click and swung silently back on its hinges, revealing a darkened corridor beyond. Following behind Manchu, Liam kept his voice low, but could not resist asking, where exactly did a priest learn how to pick a lock? It is the duty of every revolutionary to improve him or herself so that they may best aid in the struggle, Manchu answered. Off Liam's confusion, he added, you aren't the only one with a colorful past, you know. I thought you joined the priesthood when you were 18. Yes, in Guatemala, in the 1980s. Aside from their own footsteps, the rectory was completely silent. They passed Father Lopez's bedroom at the end of the hall. The door was open. The room lights were out, but the illumination that spilled through the single barred window was more than enough to show the narrow bed was still perfectly made up and unoccupied. Liam looked at Manchu, brow raised. There were no other lights on inside the rectory. No sound of footsteps in the kitchen or rustle of pages from the living room. The pipes were silent. 
The building had the feel of a place not just quiet, but empty. What is going on here? Liam whispered. By unspoken agreement, the two men made their way to the kitchen. Unlike the front entrance, which was made of heavy oak boards wrapped with iron bands, here they found a modern security door that opened easily onto the back garden. So we won't be burned alive in the event of a fire, as long as we can break out of our bedrooms. Liam caught a glimpse into the pantry. It was stacked high with tinned meat and sardines. You get the feeling that this place is bracing for a siege? He asked Manchu. They are certainly preparing for something. They stepped outside. The garden overlooked the churchyard, filled with overgrown and tilted graves. The town streetlights had gone out, but the glow of the moon cast the entire scene in a silver light that set the hair on the back of Liam's neck on end. And then he saw a dark shadow slip among the headstones. It wasn't much, a glint of moonlight on shaggy fur before the shadow froze again. But once he knew where to look, Liam could see an immense lupine head nose up and scenting the air. It turned and looked right at him. Time froze. And then the animal's snout pointed skyward and a piercing howl split the night. A second howl joined the first, and a third, and a fourth. Soon a chorus filled the air, dozens of wolves all calling to heaven. Until, as though cued by a signal only they could hear, they stopped. In the darkness of the churchyard, a pair of bestial eyes glowed red. Liam couldn't look away. Afraid that if he did, he would see dozens more staring from every direction. Afraid that if he looked away for even a second, he blinked. It was only an instant, but in the space of a heartbeat, the eyes rushed toward him, accompanied by a growl that had nothing to do with a combustion engine, and the wolf leapt at Liam's throat. Three. Manchu seized Liam's collar and hauled back with all his might. In his youth, he might have been strong enough to pull the other man off his feet and fling him bodily back into the rectory kitchen, safely on the other side of the suddenly explicable steel security door. In his age, Manchu supplemented his physical strength with force of personality. Liam, back. Manchu's tone penetrated the haze that locked Liam's muscles, and together the two men stumbled backward inside, only inches ahead of the wolf. Liam flung the door closed behind them with a crunch of bone and a pained yip. The wolf recoiled, jerking its foreleg out of the way, and Liam slammed and locked the door. Sorry I froze there, panted Liam. Some really nasty dogs in the neighborhood, grown up. Outside, the wolves sent up a new chorus of howls, and Menchu stuffed his hands into his pockets so that Liam wouldn't see them shaking. Liam eyed the door. You think it would be overkill to... Shove the kitchen table against it? Manchu gauged the heavy wooden object, easily a few hundred years old. Probably, he said. By the time they were done pushing the table into place, the howls were closer and louder than ever. Sal found the captain, a woman by the name of Coker, as tough and weathered as her boat, in the wheelhouse, staring out at the waves, seemingly lost in thought. Am I disturbing you? Sal asked. The captain shook her head, not taking her eyes off the horizon. You know, I've met a lot of oceanographers in my time. And if that's what you're sticking with, that's your business. But I couldn't help but notice the sea monster head you've got onto a tarp of my deck. Yeah, 
said Sal. Sorry about that. The captain fixed Sal with a glare that would have done Fox proud. I've got no quarrel with you folks. That thing is better decapitated on my deck than alive and need my home and livelihood. You hired me to get you here, not to ask questions. But there's more things out there like that. Those of us who will still be here after you go back to wherever you came from deserve to know. Sal nodded. That's actually what I'm here for. Could I use your sat phone? She held up her cell. Turns out global coverage doesn't cover international waters. A few minutes later, Sal was talking to Asante over the crackling connection. She'd asked the captain for privacy, but the captain had just raised her eyebrow and gone back to staring at the water. Hey, said Sal. What do your sources have to say about the situation down here? Have things quieted down? My sources? Sal could hear Asante's amusement loud and clear, at least. You mean the orb? Are we speaking in code now? I'm not alone, and yes, that's what I mean. Has it gone quiet? Not noticeably. Why? Well, we just killed a sea monster, and we're kind of hoping that would solve the problem. Really, Sal, said Asante. You won't say orb, but you're willing to talk about a sea monster. Everyone here has seen the sea monster. A sigh. I suppose. To answer your question, even if the orb were quiet about your area, I'd be skeptical. Scientists in New Zealand thought they were dealing with an earthquake. I doubt a sea monster could have caused that. If, unless, she paused. How large of a sea monster was it? It's big, but probably not earthquake big, Sal admitted. Then there's your answer, said Asante. Oh, but you might be interested to know, I did some checking. A small vessel disappeared in your area a few days ago. If this is book-related, you might be looking at a wizard who got in over their head, summoned the monster, and then got themselves eaten for their trouble. Why wasn't this in the initial brief? asked Sal. There was no distress call, no wreckage found. The boat wasn't reported missing until a few hours ago. Okay, said Sal. I'll tell Shaw. Has there been any word from Menchu and Liam? Nothing yet. Sal pushed down a rush of worry. While she knew that they had gotten along without her for years before she came onto the scene, Sal still didn't like the idea of Manchu and Liam on their own. I'll try to hurry things up here. After hanging up and returning the phone to Captain Coker, Sal paused. You should know that if you tell anyone about what you saw out here, a bunch of people in black suits are likely to show up and make your life difficult. As the captain continued to stare at her, Sal added, I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. Girl, the captain said, I live on this boat. Most of the year, I can't even see land. I don't do that because I enjoy talking to people. As she left the wheelhouse, Sal felt the ship lurch beneath her. That sudden roll of the deck could only mean one thing. Sal came to a skidding stop at the stern of the boat. On the deck, the severed sea monster head still lay under its tarp. Above, two others now seethed and writhed, still very much attached to their necks. Team One was already engaged with the head on the left. Ellsdale swung a large chain in lazy circles in the air, golden links shimmering in the sun with a dazzling intensity that the creature seemed hesitant to approach. Sue had donned the brass backpack Sal had seen her inspecting on the plane. She leapt into the air, and Sal saw that she had been wrong. The brass and steel construction wasn't a jetpack. It was a pair of shining wings. 
Once in the sky, Sue caught the loose end of Ellsdale's chain as it flicked by, then dove, nearly crashing into the deck, only to pivot up at the last moment, looping the chain around the left creature's neck. Ellsdale braced himself against the rail. Sue soared back, wings beating fast and strong against the air, pulling hard with all of their might. The chain smoked against the monster's skin, and both heads let out throaty cries. Both heads? Sal thought. But that was as far as she had time to get before she was leaping out of the way of the freshly severed sea monster head crashing onto the boat. Excellent, Chow was shouting. Now the other one. Ellsdale and Sue moved to get into position, but Grace was already at the edge of the deck, soared out, daring the second creature to come down into range. The sea monster snapped at her, but whipped back whenever any of the team got too close. Be patient, Shaw called. We can wait it out. Stay ready, and when you see your chance, take it. Sal tried to come up with something useful she could do. Would throwing one of the severed heads back overboard distract the monster at all? Probably not, and she doubted that anyone at the society would approve of her leaving sea monster heads floating around for random fishermen to drag up in their nets. The pitching of the deck had caused the tarp covering the original creature's head to slide off, leaving it lying in the open beside the one Sue and Ellsdale had just severed. The two heads were absolutely identical, like a clone. Sal thought. The last monster lunged forward and Grace caught it under the jaw with her sword. The blow wasn't enough to decapitate it, but it held it still long enough for Sue and Ellsdale to make their move, neatly trapping the neck and garroting it just as they had the last one. The severed neck sent a splash of viscous brown fluid across the deck and everyone on it. Sal caught the spray across her shins, but she barely noticed. The third head perfectly matched the other two. First one head alone, then two together, all exactly the same? What if this wasn't a case of multiple monsters, but a single monster with multiple heads? But one off. The water where one of the paired necks had gone down churned. Guys, Sal called, but everyone's attention was fixed on the water. Two more heads rose from the deep. Even as they watched, the water began to boil where the last neck stump had gone down. Shaw cursed. A hydra. How are we going to burn the next dumps in the middle of the ocean? Asked Sue. Doesn't matter, said Ellsdale. Fire just slows it down. The only way to stop a hydra from regrowing is to find the one immortal head and destroy it. Sal was so distracted by the dipping and weaving monster heads that she didn't notice Grace until she was standing on the deck rail. Silver sword in one hand and an unlit torch in the other. Grace, she screamed. What are you doing? For a moment, Grace turned to meet Sal's eyes. She opened her mouth to speak. In that moment of distraction, the sea monster reared up, swooped down, and swallowed Grace whole. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XC Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.